Chariots of Fire. That was a great movie, a memorable score by Vangelis, but if you know the true life story, uh, the movie was based on uh, two athletes in Great Britain who participated in the 1924 World Olympics in Paris, and a great contrast between the two. One is Harold Abrams. He's a Jew. He's running in the 100 meters kind of for personal and ethnic pride. And then you've got Eric Little, a Christian, running for God. Eric Little was a son of missionaries and, of course, himself ended up being a missionary in China later in his life. But part of the tension of the movie, the story, and a little different in the movie than in real life, but real-life tension was that Eric Little was supposed to run the 100 meters with Abrams. And the trouble was when he saw the schedule that would take place at the Olympics, part of the trials would occur on a Sunday. For Eric Little, this was a problem because he understood that the Sunday was the Sabbath and he was to do no work, and work in this case would have been running. So he deferred. He said, I won't run on Sunday on the Sabbath. Now, if you've watched the movie or read the story, you know that uh, God honors Eric Little because Eric Little honored God. And instead of the 100 meters, he runs the 400 meters, a race that he had not run in competitively for some time before the Olympics. And a guy, true to life in the movie, a guy passes him a note that quotes 1 Samuel that says, the man that honors me, I will honor. That really did happen by an unknown person in real life. And Eric Little won the 400 meters in world record time. But here was a guy who was willing to forego the glory of the world stage and a potential gold medal to honor God. And the movie's quite moving. It's a great story, and he led a great life. Uh, And you're inspired by that. The flip side is I was always a little confused, too, because I'm thinking, Eric, what do you mean Sunday's the Sabbath? And why can't you run on Sunday? I'm not quite with you on this. Where, Where are you going? Where are you coming from? And that's actually where we're going this morning. What's the Sabbath? And we're going to get there out of Genesis chapter 2. Before we do, you guys know, if you know anything about world history, Puritans, those uh, settlers of the United States, they had a pretty strong feeling about the Sabbath and Sabbath keeping and uh, blue laws around the United States. Some question as to why they were called blue laws. But anyway, laws that restricted what kinds of businesses were open on Sunday and how long they were open. Some of those, of course, still in effect today. But that reflects the Christian Puritan heritage that we had concerning a view of the Sabbath. You know, the flip side today, culturally, the United States has almost no practice of Sabbath or Sabbath keeping at all. As you know, the culture for the most part runs every day alike. If you are scheduled for conferences, peewee baseball, soccer, adult athletics, whatever, Sunday today is treated no differently than any other day of the week. Now, on one level, I would argue biblically that pagan view is a biblical view, just not for the right reasons and certainly not to the, to the right ends. But for Christians today, if you think about the Sabbath, I think most Christians are a little befuddled in their thinking on the Sabbath. What does that mean? Is it for me? Is Sunday the Sabbath? What's the deal? So we're going to start in Genesis because we're continuing to go through Genesis. We'll be in the first three verses of chapter 2 this morning. But we want to answer the question, what's the Sabbath? When is the Sabbath? And who is the Sabbath for? We'll start at the last verse of chapter 1. 
to put this in a little context, you know, the end of the creation week, we've spent three Sundays looking at the creation of Adam and Eve. The creation week is over, starting at verse 31. God saw all that He had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening and there was morning, the sixth day. That is, that last day Adam and Eve were created. Thus, chapter 2, the heavens and the earth were completed and all their hosts. By the seventh day, God completed His work which He had done, and He rested on the seventh day from all His work which He had done. Then God blessed the seventh day and sanctified it, or set it apart, because in it He rested from all His work which God had created and made. God looks back on His six days of creation. He looks at all the work and He says, It's very good. Verse 31, looks back at all his work of the creation work and says, it's very good. He comes to the seventh day. And the the thought is this, the seventh day, he looks back, everything's done that God wanted to do. Everything God intended for creation, it's already done. So when he looks back from the seventh day, he says, everything I've wanted to accomplish is already done. Everything is not just good, it's very good so I will cease working. And Sabbath, in Hebrew, Shabbat, it just means to rest or to cease from labors. So God enters a rest because everything that He wanted to accomplish has already been done. When He gets to the seventh day, He doesn't work. He blesses the seventh day. He sets it apart. He sanctifies it. But He does no work. The reason He does no work is because the work is already fully accomplished. Creation is everything and all that God wanted it to be. So when God looks back from the seventh day, He stops, He says, everything's good, and now I rest. I cease my labors because all the work is done. If you guys have seen a sculptor or a painter working at something, you know, if it's a canvas or a piece of stone, you'll see them working away, they're laying down layers of paint, they're using brushes or hammers and chisels or whatever. And as they start winding down near the end, they might have longer pauses and they might look at it from different vantage points. But you know, at some point, they set the chisel down, they set the paintbrushes down because the work is over. And that's essentially what God does here. All the work is over. I get to that seventh day and I take satisfaction in everything I made because it's everything I wanted it to be. There's no more work to do. The work is already entirely accomplished. God set aside the seventh day for man as a reminder that God took delight in everything he did. And for Adam, that means this. It means a couple things. Adam looks at the world he enters and he knows God says, I'm delighted with this world. I'm delighted with it just the way it is. And God resting or setting that seventh day aside is an invitation to Adam to join with God in His pleasure in the creation. That is, it's everything it should be. You can take pleasure and delight and join it just as it is. It's also a reminder to Adam that the world God has led him into is for Adam, first, a world of rest. When Adam and Eve would rest in the Garden of Eden, and remember, they were about some business. They were ruling the world we talked about. They were keeping or tilling or plowing. They were doing a various variety of work in the garden at least. But every seventh day they were going to stop. And that meant every seventh day they would have to say to themselves, whatever we got done this week was enough. And whatever we get done next week 
That'll be enough too. God worked for six days. He's commanded us to work for six days. And then we take a break. And that allows us to take pleasure in the creation God made. And it also allows us to trust God that whatever we got done in that week that just ended, it was enough. God takes delight in it and we can too. If you notice in the language of chapter 1 in Genesis, the whole creation account, it, when it articulates the days, it says there was evening and there was morning. There was evening and there was morning. So Jewish understanding and biblical understanding is this. The day does not start in the morning at sunrise. It starts at sunset. The evening to the evening represents the day. So the Sabbath, the first Sabbath, was from Friday, the end of the sixth day, to Saturday, Friday night sundown to Saturday night sundown. So the Sabbath was the seventh day, the last day, from sunset to sunset. So if we want to know what the Sabbath is, the Sabbath is not Sunday. The Sabbath is Saturday, and it's not just Saturday. It's Friday sundown to Saturday sundown. That's the Sabbath. Also think of this. For Adam and Eve coming into the Garden of Eden, they're created on the sixth day. So when they come on the stage... All the work is done. We looked at this when we were in John 5 when Jesus is, is accused of healing on the Sabbath. And we'll look at a little bit of this more later this morning. But the world Adam and Eve are created into, because they're the last thing done on the last day of creation, they got in on none of the work of creation. In other words, they come in and they get all the blessing of God's work and they've done none of the work. Their first full day, remember, is the Sabbath. So they're created on day six. Their first full day is the Sabbath. They come in on the day of rest. Their origin, the first experience for them of the world, at least as far as a full day goes, is that they come in and they rest. They take delight in what God's done and they rest. Their introduction into this world was one of rest. If you read the history books, and I'm thinking primarily of Genesis and the Old Testament, you'll see that the patriarchs practiced a seven-day week. It's not articulated what all that looked like as far as what did Sabbath-keeping look like for them. It actually doesn't say specifically. But we know they practiced a seven-day week, and we assume probably some form of keeping the Sabbath was part of that. But whatever they did or didn't do, when God institutes a formal relationship with the nation of Israel, He formalizes or institutionalizes the keeping of the Sabbath. So when Moses gets the law, the old covenant from God on Sinai in Exodus 20, verses 8 through 11, the fourth commandment of the Ten Commandments relates to the Sabbath. And there God told Moses this, Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male or female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and he rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. God says to Israel, just as I worked for six days in creation and stop, you're to labor for six days and take that last day off. You're to mimic my creation week. Work for six days, take one day off. 
This was a good thing for Israel on a couple different levels. One is just relating to rest. One day in seven at least, everybody had to take a break, a siesta. Every man, woman, child, every servant, every laborer, all the animals. Everyone was given a break. This is, at least at one level, this is an acknowledgement that humanity needs rest. That is, that unlike God, God didn't rest on the Sabbath because He was tired. God's omnipotent, and so He can't fatigue. He can't get tired. But He rested because the work was adequate. It was enough, and it was done. We, on the other hand, whatever we bring to our work, we get tired, and we wear out, and we need rest. And for God on the benefit side of this, God says to Israel, you guys are going to take a real rest at least once every week. One out of every seven days at least, you're going to take a real break. Think of this. If you sleep about eight hours a day, and most of us do, give or take a little bit, you sleep, add that up, you sleep about one-third of your life. If you think about it like that, it's a little staggering, isn't it? If you've got a lifetime before you, if you live to be 75, you sleep 25 years. Whatever your life expectancy is, about a third of it, we could say at one hand it's wasted. But it's not really wasted, is it? Because we simply can't go on. We need rest. And so God institutionalizes this notion that man is insufficient on his own to keep going, to keep working. We've got to rest. We've got to take breaks. It shows our limited nature. By the way, if you study the French Revolution, um, it was atheistic in its nature to a large degree, and the French changed the calendar as part of the French Revolution. Did you know this? They went to a 10-day week. And you know it didn't last very long, and you know why? Because people and animals were wearing out. They couldn't go that long. They couldn't stretch to a 10-day work week. But that was the French thinking. They were obscuring a tie every day tied to the Bible by a seven-day work week. They said, we're going 10. And it didn't work. It just, it stretched and taxed people beyond what was practical. So one thing, one benefit of this was God says, you're limited, you have limited strength, and you need to rest. And I'm formalizing that. The other thing was this, though. This commandment to take the seventh day off made Israel trust God in a way it wouldn't have otherwise. In other words, let's say you're a farmer and it's time to sow the land, but you've got to take that seventh day off. Or it's harvest time and you've got to take that seventh day off. You sort of are compelled to say this, I must trust God for the work I got done. He's told me take that Sabbath day, that seventh day off. The fields aren't all in, and I guess that's okay. I've got to trust God with the field. Or the plowing's not done. Or the animals need this kind of care or that or whatever. But when God formalized this, it required Israel to trust Him for these things. You'll see later, I'll I'll mention part of the reason Israel went to Babylon was a failure to keep the Sabbath. And it was because they weren't willing to trust God. They were going to treat it like any other day, Under covenant, God said, I want you to treat this day differently and I want you to trust me for what you get done in six days and what you don't get done in six days. Now, because Israel went to Babylon for 70 years of captivity, in part, God says in Jeremiah, related to their not keeping the Sabbath. 
When they came back to the land, this was one of the things they developed a great care over. So Jewish scholars developed 39 articles by which they defined what was and was not acceptable work to do on the Sabbath. And, you know, when you read the New Testament and it talks about rules about doing one thing or another that you can't find in the Bible, it's typically these 39 articles. But the Jews wanted to make sure that they kept the Sabbath in a way that God wouldn't punish them for the lack of that again. So they fenced it around with all these rules and regulations. They became so strict at keeping the Sabbath that during both the Maccabean Revolt in around 168 B.C. and the revolt under Titus in 70 A.D., the Jewish uh, fighters would not fight initially on the Sabbath. So you know what happened. Thousands of them were slaughtered by Roman soldiers. Now, their theology on the Sabbath changed in both uprisings because of this. And they said, oh, okay, Uh, we won't initiate any battles, but we can defend ourselves on the Sabbath. And so they did. But even when Jerusalem was surrounded by Rome in 70 AD, it said that the, the works that were put up against the wall so the Romans could enter the city were built on the Sabbath because the Jews wouldn't work you know, try and tear them down or prevent them from it because it was the Sabbath. So the Jews became very particular about keeping the Sabbath partly because of the Babylonian captivity and also no doubt partly just because of love of rules. But by the time Jesus gets onto the stage, keeping the Sabbath is a big deal. So in creation, you've got God establishing a day that reflects His work week. Everything's perfect. Adam comes in on the last day. The patriarchs serve some type of seven-day week. God institutionalizes Sabbath-keeping under the law. Israel fiddles with that a little bit and says, we won't do that again. And so by the time Jesus gets there, they're very focused on keeping the law. You can read all kinds of passages in the Gospels about Jesus and the Sabbath. I'm just going to focus on one story briefly. And it's in Matthew 12, verses 2 through 7. Jesus and the disciples are walking through a field of grain on the Sabbath. And so they're picking some of the heads, they're rolling it between their hands, and they're eating the raw grain. Well, the Pharisees see this, and so they say, hey, your, your disciples are doing what's not lawful. What was unlawful? Well, doing this with the grain was mill work. They were milling the grain. So that was work not to be done on the Sabbath. <clears throat> Jesus says this in verse 3, Have you not read what David did when he became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered the house of God and they ate the consecrated bread which was not lawful for him to eat nor for those with him but for the priests alone? By the way, the story, David fleeing from Saul with his chosen men and they have no food. So the only food they could get was the food from the tabernacle. Verse 5, Or have you not read in the law that on the Sabbath the priests in the temple break the Sabbath and are innocent, that is, priests serving in the temple are working. But God doesn't say they're guilty of working on the Sabbath. Something else comes into effect. He says that verse 6, I say to you that something greater than the temple is here. If you had known what this means, I desire compassion and not a sacrifice, you would not have condemned the innocent. In Mark's gospel 2 verses 27 and 28, same story, Mark adds this, Jesus said to them, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. And then Luke 6, 9, different setting, similar theme though. A man is in a gathering, I believe this was at the synagogue, 
with a withered hand, and the Pharisees are there to see if he will heal, that is, work, on the Sabbath. Jesus says, I ask you, is it lawful to do good or to do harm on the Sabbath, to save a life or to destroy it? After looking around at them all, he said to them, stretch out your hand. He did so. His hand was restored. They themselves were filled with rage and discussed together what they might do to Jesus. Another version says how they might destroy Jesus. Now, technically, the Pharisees looked at Jesus healing on the Sabbath and said, you're breaking the Sabbath because you're healing. Technically, they were plotting an innocent man's murder, but were keeping the Sabbath when they did it. Somehow that made sense. Two things about what Jesus says about the Sabbath here. Um, this thing about the exception to the rule, uh, you know, if you've got kids, a lot of times uh, they want to know, when, uh, I know I'm not supposed to do this, but when can I do that? When can I break the rule? There's a sense in which Jesus says, sometimes there's a good reason to break a rule. So when he mentions David, and by the way, this became an issue for Jewish scholars on determining how, what was admissible to do on the Sabbath. This story from David. David broke the law, clearly, no doubt about it. But the thinking went like this. Jesus, uh, David broke a law to serve a higher purpose. Uh, David and his men needed to live, and so they ate bread that they wouldn't have normally, but it was for this overarching good. It was so that they could preserve life. So the Jews, even in Jesus' day, would have acknowledged that sometimes it was okay to set aside a certain law or rule if it was for a nobler end or an overarching good. And Jesus essentially goes along with that here. He says David did break the law. He doesn't say he didn't. But David did it and was not... uh, God didn't put him out for it. It was acceptable to God what he did. He didn't keep the law formally, but he did something that he was considering more important. For Jesus, in these gospel stories, the more important thing is healing someone on a Sabbath. Jesus says healing this person's hand or this person who's been lame or this woman is more important than not technically working. In fact, he says in John's Gospel, my father's working today, or my father's working to now, and so I'm doing the same thing my father is. The other thing about Jesus' statement here in a couple of the passages is that when he says he's Lord of the Sabbath, it's a pretty bold claim because God instituted the Sabbath, both in creation and at Sinai. So if Jesus says he's the Lord of the Sabbath, it's a claim to deity. And then he says, as Lord of the Sabbath, I'm free to tell you what it means and what it doesn't mean. You've got 39 articles, but I'm the Lord of the Sabbath, and I can tell you what is a priority and what isn't. And Jesus said, loving God and loving others, even in practical ways, is more important than a formal view of keeping the Sabbath. Doing good to others is more important than a formulaic view of keeping the Sabbath. Jesus didn't put out the Sabbath. He didn't say don't keep the Sabbath, but he said there were things more important than a ritual observance of the seventh day. When you get to the church age, when you get past the Gospels and you get into Acts and the Epistles, you see that the church did not keep the Sabbath. Now early on, all the Christians were Jews. And so they started keeping Sunday, the first day of the week, as well as maintaining an observance of the Sabbath, Saturday. Now, the reason, apparently, that they add Sunday is Jesus' resurrection from the dead was on a Sunday. And then not long after that, on Pentecost Sunday, 
when the Holy Spirit comes and the church age begins, the Holy Spirit descends on a Sunday, the first day of the week as well. And so when Paul writes to the church in Corinth in 1 Corinthians 16, 2, he acknowledges that they're to set aside money for a collection they were taking on the day they meet, the first day of the week. Now you can read and you know there's a, uh, there's a troublesome transition for the early church because the Jews weren't sure what to do with the law that they were already under, the law of Sinai, the old covenant. Jesus said at the Last Supper, I'm instituting a new covenant, a new arrangement between me and you. But there was a transition period in which the Jews didn't know what to do with this. How much of the law do we keep? To what, to what end are we supposed to keep the rules we grew up with? When the Holy Spirit, though, is given to Gentiles who aren't under the old covenant, they're not circumcised, the Holy Spirit comes on them anyway, brings them in through faith in Christ, the Jewish believers understand God's not making a distinction between them and us. So we can't tell them they've got to keep the law. God's blessed them and brought them into the church anyway. It's not based on the law. It's not based on the old covenant anymore. So in the church age, you see early Christians, Jews, practicing both Sabbath observance and meeting on the first day of the week. But as the church progresses to the Gentile nations, you don't see the practice of the Sabbath continuing but the church, the early church, meeting on the first day of the week, not the seventh anymore. If you go through history back up to, say, even 150 years or so ago, um, both when the Puritans came, they had a strong sense of the Sabbath, but even in the early and mid-1800s, Baptists called Sabbath Baptists also did as well. They brought back an observance of the Sabbath. And, you know, if you drive around Topeka today, you'll see empty churches on Sunday where the sign out front says Seventh-day Adventists. Same thing. They believe that Sabbath-keeping was a requirement for Christians today and for people of all ages. And In fact, part of Seventh-day Adventist teaching is that God's future judgment on the world will come in part because the church has failed or refused to keep the Sabbath. When we were kids, we had neighbors who would split wood and sometimes they split wood on Sunday. And I remember going to my mom after Mass, uh, wanting to go split wood with the Simpson boys. And I asked her if that was okay. I'm thinking about axes and you know sharp instruments. And she says, well, no, you can't. And she's hesitating, thinking, it wasn't a developed theology for my mom, I'm sure. But no, you can't. Well, why? Well, because you don't work on Sunday. Same, it was the same thinking. Um, this sense that Sunday and Saturday are somehow both the Sabbath. But think about this for just a minute. If you try and keep the Sabbath, are you doing that on Sunday or Saturday? If you think you're supposed to keep the Sabbath, you can't do that on Sunday. Sabbath keeping is the seventh day of the week. It's on Saturday. So it wouldn't just be Saturday. It'd be Friday night to Saturday night. If you're going to keep the Sabbath, it's got to be Friday night a Saturday night, seventh day of the week, not the first day. For many Christians, Sunday they call the Sabbath, but go to the scriptures to find out where the Sabbath was moved from the seventh day to the first day. It's not there, of course. So this is what I mean about Christians having muddled thinking on this topic. We haven't thought about it, and we followed practices that aren't biblical. Sunday is not the Sabbath. Saturday is the Sabbath. If you're going to keep the Sabbath, make sure it's Friday night to Saturday night. And by the way, 
if you keep the Sabbath, what more of the law do you need to keep as well? How much more the Ten Commandments, and, and by the way, part of the law reflected things that were true at any time. Before God gave the law in Sinai, loving God was what we should do. Not killing others was what we should do. And after Jesus institutes the new covenant, a new arrangement between God and man. Now, killing others is not okay because we're not under the old covenant. But the old covenant stipulated and articulated some things that were true for all time. But if you practice the Sabbath because it was part of the command to Israel, by what rationale do you take it out of all the rest of the commandments? So, and, and by the way, the Ten Commandments, that's not the law. Those are just ten words. That's part of the covenant. But it's a small part of the covenant Israel was under. So if you're going to practice the Sabbath, if you're consistent, there's a whole lot of other things you need to do as well. If you're going to be consistent, the Sabbath is Saturday, Friday night to Saturday night. And you need to practice it and the rest of the law as well. And of course, as Christians, we understand that's not what God has called us to. The early church, we mentioned, went through a transition period. Part of that is reflected in Paul's epistle to the Romans in Romans 14. I mentioned this briefly. The church at Rome had both Gentile and Jewish believers. And so the Jews especially are trying to figure out, what do I do? What do I not do? And based on what I should do, then what should the Gentile believers do? And this affected things like, what do I eat? What should I not eat? And Paul says, I'll only read part of this briefly, but Paul said the, the issue is uh, idolatry and meat would be sacrificed to idols and then it'd be sold in the marketplace. And the, the Jews and the Christians, these new believers want to know, can I eat that meat in the marketplace? Because maybe it was sacrificed to an idol. Paul talks about this in 1 Corinthians as well. Paul says this, the man with knowledge, the person with knowledge knows there's no God but God. And that meat, it's just meat. The earth is the Lord's and everything in it. It's meat, you're free to eat it. But it says the man who has a weak conscience, he doesn't eat the meat because in his mind it's polluted or in his mind he'd be sinning if he eats the meat because it was sacrificed to another God or because it's inherently unclean. However that comes about in his mind, it's unclean to him, not because there's anything wrong with the meat. The one who has knowledge, Paul says, he eats the meat. He's free to. This also came down, though, to days of the week. What do I do about Sabbath and also other Jewish holidays? So Paul said this, Romans 14, 5, One man considers one day more sacred than another. That would be the Sabbath or other Jewish holidays. Another man considers every day alike. That's the man who understands every day is God's day, not just the Sabbath. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Eric Little was fully convinced in his own mind. He kept the Sabbath on the wrong day of the week to honor God and kept a, a clear conscience. That was no, well, that was appropriate. Paul's, Paul would have said to Eric Little, don't sin against your own conscience by running on the Sabbath if you're really convinced that you shouldn't. Even though, Paul says, to those who understand, they're free to exercise their choice of meat options, Big Macs or Burger Kings at the local market or whatever, and they're free to exercise the day of the week as they wish as well, as long as they know that. He says at verse 7 and 8, none of us lives to himself alone, none of us dies to himself alone. If we live, we live to the Lord. If we die, we die to the Lord. So whether we live or die, we belong to the Lord. In Paul's book, 
They're all Sabbaths. Every day is the Sabbath in the sense that they all belong to God. All the meat's God. All the world's God. Every day is God's. Live every day as if it's God's. Jewish Christians, if you look in the book of Hebrews, uh, there were Jews who trusted in Christ and they were tempted to go back to Judaism. And part of this was persecution. Part of it, again, trying to put the pieces of the puzzle together. What do I make of Christ's claim versus the Old Testament? In Hebrews chapter 4, the writer talks about the Sabbath. And this is one of the most helpful passages in the New Testament on our understanding of the Sabbath today. This is a little lengthy and I've excised it to try and uh, hopefully to help make this clear. Remember that under Moses, God was leading slaves out of Egypt to a land of promise where they'd be at rest. Okay, so the picture is, I'm leaving the work of slavery and I'm going to the promised land of rest. But something happened to them. You remember what happened to most of the people who left Egypt? They didn't get to the place of rest, did they? They died in the wilderness, and that's what he's taking up here. The writer says, The word they heard, that is from Moses, God to Moses to them, didn't profit them. Why? It wasn't united by faith in those who heard. They didn't believe. And so they didn't enter the land of promise, the place of rest. Verse 3 says, We who have believed, we who believe, enter that rest just as he said. We who believe enter the promised rest. Verse 6, It remains for some to enter it, to enter the rest God promised. And those who formerly had good news, the Jews in the wilderness, preached them, failed to enter because of disobedience. Verse 7, God again fixes a certain day, today, saying through David after so long a time, just as he had said before, Today if you hear his voice, don't harden your heart. The writer of Hebrews is substituting today for the Sabbath. Today is today, and it's tomorrow becomes today, and next week becomes today. In other words, for the writer of Hebrews, now it's not just a Sabbath that you enter God's rest. It's today. Today is every day. Today is any day. Verse 9 and 10, the conclusion, So there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. The writer says there remains a Sabbath rest. If he stopped there, we might be confused, but he concludes with this. The one who has entered his rest, God's rest, has himself also rested from his works as God did from his. There's a Sabbath rest still here, and it's for today. And every day is today. And the way you enter God's Sabbath rest is through faith. When you trust in Christ, you In the language of Hebrews, you enter the promised land. You enter the place of rest through faith in Christ, not through keeping a day of the week. Paul says essentially the same thing in Colossians 2, verses 16 and 17. You guys know it's easy to be religious. That is, we develop develop an external criteria by which we measure our own spirituality or our maturity or someone else's. And that's what was going on in Colossae. Some group was saying this is what spirituality looks and they were actually the opposite of spiritual they were carnal so paul says in colossians 2 verses 16 and 17 don't let anyone judge you by what you eat or drink or with regard to a religious festival a new moon celebration or a sabbath day paul said don't let anyone judge you in regards to a sabbath day 
These are shadows of the things that were to come. The reality, however, is found in Christ. Paul says Christ, in essence, is the end of the Sabbath. Christ is the Sabbath. For Christians, knowing Christ, being found in Christ, is our rest. Christ is the fulfillment of Sabbath rest. If you're in Christ, you have the kind of rest God wanted you to have. He's the end of working for righteousness. Christ is the end of God's work in redemption. Knowing Christ is the fulfillment of entering the kind of rest God had in mind all along. Your body still needs rest. You and I still sleep every night or most nights. And we take days off of the week or we take vacations off because we recognize we need rest. This is still a good thing. Whether you do it on the seventh day of the week or the first day of the week or whatever, you and I still need physical rest. It's still a limitation on our bodies and we get that kind of rest. But the ultimate kind of rest God was talking about can't be satisfied by a day of the week. You can't get there. And think of this too, going from Hebrews and Colossians back to Genesis 1. At the end of the creation week, God looks back at everything He's done and He says, it's good, it's very good, I have delight, I'm pleased with what I see. In Matthew 3.17, when Jesus comes up out of the waters of baptism and begins His ministry on the earth, God looks down from heaven and says, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Just like the Father looking back over the creation work and saying, I'm pleased with this, the Father looks at Jesus on the earth and says, I'm pleased with this. This is very good. Also think of this. That first week of creation ended on the sixth day. On the sixth day, all the work was over. Sixth day, Jesus is crucified on the sixth day of the week. The work of redemption accomplished on the sixth day of the week. Jesus says, it is finished. Your redemption and mine ends on that day. When we believe in Christ, we don't start a life of work. We enter a life of rest. Just like Adam and Eve entering the garden on the sixth day, the end of the work, and they come in and they get this, the first full day is the Sabbath, they enter rest. When you and I become Christians, we're not coming under a whip or under a weight or under a burden to carry. We're coming into the rest of redemption that Christ accomplished Himself. Just like Adam gaining the benefit of all God's work, we gain the same benefit through Christ. It's the end of the work week for Christ. It's the beginning of rest for us. You know, just to wind down with some images, uh, Jesus is the soft bed at the end of a long day. He's the easy chair after you, you spend your day with back-breaking work. He's the easy chair you recline in. He's your home at the end of a long journey. The kind of rest God intends for us can't be found in a day of the week. Only Christ can give your soul and mind the kind of rest God intended for us. We set aside Sundays, the first day of the week, to meet together and to worship and to grow in Christ. And that's the example of the early church. But in doing so, we're not keeping the Sabbath. We're entering rest on that Sunday, the same that we do hopefully on Monday and Tuesday and Wednesday. The days all belong to God and all of our life is supposed to be lived in this sense of entering the rest God's provided for us. You can honor one day above another if you want, but you don't have to. You can treat every day alike because they all belong to God and you belong to God every day of the week. 
Kent will lead us a little later in the worship time in remembrance of the Lord's Supper. But this morning, as you take the Lord's Supper, think of this at least. Jesus has accomplished whatever it is you and I could have or should have, but, but didn't accomplish. Jesus has accomplished for us. So that when you and I trust in Christ, we're entering a life of rest. And when we remember the Lord in His death and resurrection, we're in essence, we're remembering the work Christ accomplished on our behalf. It's work we can't enter into. We don't bring anything to our redemption, to our salvation, except our need. Jesus provides all the work. He gets the job done. And then He welcomes us into His rest at the end of the day. Let's pray. Lord, I pray that you'll help us be clear in our thinking as we follow you. You've told those who know you to love you with minds as well as hearts. And I pray that you help us think clearly about Sabbath days and other things as well so that we're mature in our thinking, so that we're not misled by others with religious appearances but falling short of laying hold of Christ, Lord. Father, I pray for each of us that we would have a rich experience in our relationship with you of rest. And Lord, out of that sense of rest, the things you mean for us to accomplish on the earth, the yoking you put us up together with your son, the Lord Jesus, with, that we would be with him, with you, in the things you have for us on the earth, understanding that it's your spirit who's accomplishing the work. Make us ready helpers, Lord, but not mistake that we somehow in our power or our might are accomplishing your work. Father, Lord Jesus, thanks that you've done everything for us and that that rest remains and we we enter it, Lord, through faith, through trust in you. In Jesus' name, amen.